You're listening to TIP. On today's episode, I sit down with RF Kareem to talk about Netflix. RF holds a degree in economics from MIT and is a senior investment analyst at Ensemble Capital. Netflix is an amazing example of a company with an incredible flywheel effect. A lot of people stated that Netflix would never be profitable, and yet they became cash flow positive in 2020 and claimed to be self-funding production from here. Today, we discuss the moat around Netflix compared to HBO, Disney, Amazon, and others, the amazing strategy for customer acquisition behind the growth, RF's intrinsic value of Netflix, and a whole lot more. I love this discussion, and I learned a lot. It's amazing to see how these incredibly large and fast-growing companies may still have a lot of upside ahead. I hope you enjoy it as well. So without further ado, here's my conversation with RF Kareem. You are listening to The Investor's Podcast, where we study the financial markets and read the books that influence self-made billionaires the most. We keep you informed and prepared for the unexpected. Welcome to The Investor's Podcast. I'm your host, Trey Lockerbie. And today, we're super excited to have back on the show, Arif Kareem. Arif, welcome back. Hey, thanks, Trey. I'm so glad to be back. I'm a big fan of your show and um, you know, chatting with you and the others uh, is always, always a great thing for me. Well, you and I connected, gosh, it was back in September of 2020 for a little bit. And you were telling me about Netflix at the time. Man, I wish I bought some because it's done pretty well since then. And so I, I had to have you on the show and talk a little bit more about the pick, how it's looking to you now. And I know a lot of our audience follow a lot of the FANG type of companies. And so it'll be interesting to check in on Netflix and see what your forecast looks like for it. Happy to talk about Netflix. It's an amazing company. We've followed it for a long time. And um, you know, we continue to expect that uh, they will continue to execute really well going forward. Huge opportunity in front of them. So RF, I recently interviewed Robert Hagstrom, who in his latest book broke down this evolution of investing into three phases. Basically, starting with Benjamin Graham net nets, essentially, moving from there to do more of a discounted cash flow type of modeling, and then finally evolving to understanding network effect type of companies. And that's where I feel like I've been transitioning into most recently. And Netflix appears to be a good example of a company with you know, a strong network effect, or maybe another way to put it is at least a strong flywheel effect, if we use the Jim Collins analogy. So basically, a flywheel effect where the more users generating revenue for the company equals higher quality content at a reasonable price, which then leads to more people coming onto the platform and so on. I'm wondering if this is how you see Netflix, if this is what originally intrigued you about the company and how you kind of see that evolving over time. As Netflix grew subscribers, they had more revenue coming. They would take that revenue and reinvest it in both content to, and really content is the product. And in any media service, content is the product, right? So they reinvested in content and they would reinvest a portion in marketing to go out and add new subscribers. And so it became this flywheel effect, right? The more content you had, the better content you had, the more appealing your service was. And then you market to new subscribers your content. and um, you would add them and that would bring more revenue and hence you have more money to reinvest in content and marketing. One thing that was really interesting was that, you know, there's another piece of this flywheel effect, which is that when you bring an incremental subscriber, you have incremental dollars to spend on more content. That incremental dollar of content spending benefits all subscribers, right? So every incremental subscriber benefits all subscribers. And that's the classic sort of network effect phenomenon. So that's an inherent part of Netflix's core. And, um, you know, at the time, Netflix, and for many years, you know, since they made that transition from DVD to streaming, they basically reinvested as much of their you know, dollars coming out of the PL into content and marketing as they could. And in fact, to accelerate the build of that scale, because nobody else was doing this, right? They had the market all to themselves, this internet, global video delivery market. They had just to themselves. Um, they accelerated the build of that scale by borrowing money at very low rates. I mean, capital was cheap, right? And the market was willing to lend to them at very low rates of low interest rates. And so I think the management was very savvy uh, and smart in taking advantage of the fact that there's all this capital available to accelerate growth that scale, both on subscribers and content. And you know, the bigger those two get, the more scale Netflix has, the better a service it can offer, the bigger, the, the wider the distance between it and 
any legacy media provider would be when the legacy media providers decided they would get into this business, which surprisingly took them a long time. I mean, it sounded like Jeff Bezos at Amazon talked about how Amazon had, I think it was a seven-year lead on cloud computing, you know, before anybody else started doing it. And he was just like, we were quiet about it because we didn't want to alert our competitors to it, right? I mean, we were surprised that they didn't come in and start doing the same thing, but we were quietly building this great business. And, and the thing is, these kinds of businesses, when it's, when it's a new business model, you need time to work out the kinks in that business model, right? Whether it's how do you acquire subscribers cost-effectively? How do you retain them efficiently? How do you deliver service in a way that's, you know, like go, and usually these new services started kind of crappy in terms of quality. And we all know this from Netflix. I mean, when Netflix streaming first launched, when it was free, it was B-movies and it was not that good, right? Which is why it was free. But when Netflix made this, the change to basically start charging for streaming, you know, they believed in the future service as being this amazing service that could be very convenient and cheaper than the, at the time, the current way that video content service was being delivered via, via wires. But it took a while for, you know, the quality of the, con- the service to get better so that, you know, when you press play, it plays, right? There's a lag. Similarly with, with Amazon in, in their AWS cloud services, it started at low end. It kind of served, you know, sort of startups that were looking, that didn't have the money to buy their own data centers. They would kind of use Amazon service. But in that, you learn and you develop technical capabilities to improve the service to the point where it's the classic disruption disruption where your service becomes the superior service delivered at a lower price. And all of a sudden, you're eating the lunch of the incumbents who are highly profitable, but underinvesting in both the service, the technology, and maybe even the content. Because today, if you look at Netflix, you know, they rival HBO, which historically has been kind of a top-tier content guy in the business, but they, they rival HBO in terms of content quality and they rival and, and yet they have this huge amount of content as well, you know, that, that spans the gamut of, I might be a, you know, a guy who loves high quality content that's, you know, award-winning, but you might be the guy that loves Adam Sandler, right? And that's what you care about. And so they span the gamut, right? Of that. I love things about black holes. You might love things, you know, you might like stand-up comedy or you might like animation. So over time, they've expanded the types of subscribers that they can, they can address by expanding and scaling their content. So yeah, I mean, that, so all that together comes together to create the moat that Netflix has today. And, and the way I describe it usually is that, you know, the number one thing, and when I think about the moat of Netflix, which most people don't think about, but increasingly is, there's more talk about it, which is that culture is a huge moat source that has not been talked about before. In part because it's hard. You know, you know who talks about culture as, as a moat source? It's VCs, venture capitalists do, because they understand it's the people building a business that's all that relates to success. Whereas historically, value investors have thought about tangible assets as being the value of the business. The value of business is not the tangible assets. It's what you, how productive those assets are, whether tangible and today more and more so intangible. And so that all comes down to people that are managing the assets of the business and managing the productivity of the, of the group of people working together every day you know, to produce something, right? And so it's that managing of assets and people produce something that customers really value. But as I delved into the space, a couple of things happened, actually. One was being a value investor. You know, with the thing that looked most interesting to me was Time Warner because they owned HBO. And HBO is a global brand. You know, everybody knows HBO. When you compare the multiple of Netflix to a Time Warner, there's a huge disparity. And yet here you had Time Warner. They had um, this massive content catalog because they've been around for a long, long time. And they generated new content constantly, right? Um, and then you had HBO, which was a premier network they had built out. It had large distribution in the US, something on the order of 40 million subscribers in the US. And uh, it was also being, its content was being distributed internationally as well via licensing. So they weren't making, you know, sort of a per subscriber fee so much as on the order of like US subscribers, which was 10 to $15 per month. They were making more like a, a buck or two a month for, you know, sort of, you'd call it sort of loosely subscribers, you know, internationally. Um, at the time, they talked about something like 120 million you know, global subscribers. But really, it was licensing deals with international pay TV providers, licensing their content. They didn't have any sort of direct relationship with the subscribers. And so, you know, as, as luck would have it, Time Warner launched what was called HBO Now, I think at the time, which was their streaming service. This was in April 2015. And so we were all lathered up about this. You know, it's like, here's this opportunity, this hidden gem you know, that Time Warner really wasn't getting any credit for. And I remember saying at the time that this is going to be great 
The only thing HBO needs to do, the Time Warner needs to do, is they need to go out and hire the deficiency they had was being able to reach customers, direct to customer, sort of over the internet type of skill set, I guess you'd call it, that I understood to be hard. I understood them not to have that necessarily, right? So it was something you had to build out. And so I remember making this comment that they should just go hire the head of Netflix's customer acquisition for whatever price it costs. They should just go out and hire him and then just spend a bunch of money to go get subscribers, right? Like you need to get to scale. And, uh, you know, over the next year or so, it was very disappointing. So w- when they did this, Time Warner concurrently, as soon thereafter, I think they had an investor day sort of late in 2015 or mid 2015. And they talked about how they were going to invest money behind this effort and they were going to, re- they reduce, they cut their, you know, guidance for earnings. And, uh, and I was like, great, I mean, the stock was down. I was happy about it because they were doing the right thing. They were investing in the streaming business that could be very lucrative and, and global. You know, cut forward a couple of months, a couple of quarters, and, you know, all of a sudden, Tom Warner was talking about, oh, our earnings came in better than expected. Our, our costs were lower. And I was kind of scratching my head and thinking, that shouldn't be, actually. What, whatever savings you have, you should definitely reinvest into HBO. And they were talking about how they're rewarding their shareholders now and, you know, returning capital, continuing to return capital to shareholders. And to me, it was just like HBO had not grown that much. I mean, they'd grown, um, I want to say out of memory, maybe 500,000, 800,000 subscribers over the year, which was nothing compared to Netflix, which was growing, I don't know, something like 10 million or something like that, right? At the time. I, let me see if I can find the numbers actually, but um, you basically had, so, so here, okay. So from 2015, when HBO now launched to 2017, you had them adding 800,000 subscribers in 2015. 1.2 million new subscribers in 2016, and then 3 million to 2017. And so the, the total of that is 5 million subscribers. On the other hand, Netflix added 17 million subscribers in 15, 19 million in 16, and then 24 million in 17. They added, what is that, you know, 27, 36, and 24. It's, it's about 60 million, basically, right? Um, so 60 million compared to 5 million. I mean, it's, it's just ridiculous, right? The, the disparity, right? Thankfully, we didn't wait till 2017 to discover this, right? This was kind of history, but we saw early on that Time Warner wasn't putting the type of resources we believed they needed to, to really get HBO now going. And, and, and we felt like there was, a, there was a window you know, for this where you have to get to scale to compete with Netflix. Do you think that there was a difference in philosophy there? Because obviously HBO is known for putting in just deca millions of dollars into the content itself. I mean, Game of Thrones comes to mind. I mean, these are like unbelievable expenses. And are yeah. they just relying on the quality of the content to drive subscribership as, as opposed to maybe a different philosophy that Netflix had? Or is there, is there any difference in approach there that you see? That's a great question, man. And that's where I was heading is that, you know, what you could see was that there was definitely a, a difference in management philosophy and culture. Um, so to your point, you know, you said HBO is putting a deca million into Game of Thrones, and and they're known for high quality content. And I think it was maybe in the 2015 timeframe, plus or minus a year, where Netflix's chief content officer, Ted Sarandos, had made this comment in an interview where he said that Netflix's goal was to become HBO faster than HBO could become Netflix. That was a really interesting comment, right? Because our bet was that HBO would become Netflix faster than Netflix would become HBO, right? That's what we're betting on when we own Time Warner. And it was entirely driven by kind of sort of this very nominal view of like the difference in valuation. Netflix was, oh, so expensive. And Time Warner was trading at, I want to say maybe 15 times earnings or something like that, right? Around, you know, plus or minus a couple of points. But, but what we saw when we got involved, you know, and then we were paying attention closely to the media space was that the management at Time Warner was still stuck to this idea of what shareholders want is, you know, they want current capital returns, right? They want return of capital. And this was the big theme from, you know, call it 2010 to 2016 or 17, where large companies, and then I think this was, you know, activism in the early 2010s that drove them to be very much oriented towards returning capital shareholders, underinvesting in their own businesses. But on the other hand, you saw startup cultures like Netflix's, where it wasn't a startup anymore, but it still had that culture of innovation and looking to add value to the customer and you know, just a more dynamic, agile culture behind focusing on the customer experience and delivering to the customer what would be valuable and enjoyable for them. And then incrementally working to improve that over time. And so you're, you're kind of building this, the moat ends up being at the end of the day, 
delighting the customer, right? I mean, this is a term that I think Apple would be introduced or people have learned this from Apple, that delighting the customer is a very lucrative business model, right? If that is your focus, it's very lucrative. On the other hand, traditional media companies like Time Warner, and we saw this with other media companies as well, you know, they were beholden to this legacy business model that was tied to cash flows coming out of the cable TV business. Now, at the time, if you looked at cable TV, I mean, you know, you had 200 channels you could watch. You paid 80 to 100 bucks a month for access to that video. And the average American, I think the statistics I'd seen were like, you know, watches four to five hours of television a day. But what you saw with Netflix was that their customer engagement, if you look at their subscribers, their subscribers were spending two hours a day watching Netflix. They were highly engaged. And yet they're only paying like 12 bucks a month. So for 12 bucks a month, you're getting two hours of high quality engagement as a customer. When you also, most customers also had cable television that were paying 80 to 100 bucks a month for, and were watching maybe an incremental two to three hours on that. And so the value proposition was vastly different, right? Like coupled with that was this idea that people wanted access to video content, quality professional video content, anytime, anywhere. You want it on your iPad, on your iPhone. The legacy media companies were all about limiting access to content. So you came to watch on a certain channel this show that you're watching once a week instead of being able to binge, you know, as you'd like. You had to watch it when they put it forward on, on cable television. So you had to be there at a certain time to watch, as opposed to watch whenever you're free, whenever you want. You had to, you know, watch on your cable TV box. You needed your cable television box to access the content, as opposed to watching it anywhere. Now, some of the media providers, um, you know, like CBS, I think was one, um, memory's getting a little blurry, but there were some that a lot that had apps on your tablet that they had just started to you know, sort of implement. And you had this sort of TV anywhere kind of a thing where you could watch it anywhere. But at the end of the day, the experience was kludgy. It was, there was a lot of friction in it. And it was all about control, controlling the content because they were so afraid of people stealing content or sharing it with friends. And um, Netflix really was not. So these are all part of your, your question about what does it say about management and really inherently culture of the company. It was all about the viewpoint of, for the media companies, it was very much about profit maximization. I want to control my content because then I want to control the economics around that. And I want to accrue more cash flow for my customers, for myself. Netflix's model was more like, we want to deliver a great experience for the customer. So we'll start with that. And then we'll worry about the other parts you know, later. And in the process, there's a bunch of learnings that they had. And, and I'll just throw out one that, you know, to me, was fascinating, which is, you know, this, this idea of controlling your content, right? So going back to Napster, you know, back in the early 2000s, when the music industry basically sued consumers for downloading music for free using Napster, it was about the media industry sort of learned from that, that they needed ways to control their contents, so that it couldn't be stolen, you know, by customers. And that's well and good, of course, right? You don't want that. But on the other hand, with Netflix, their model was more geared around winning new, new customers. We, we want people to watch. We want people to have access to our content. We want them to then want it. And then eventually they'll pay for it was kind of the belief. And so I like to think that, you know, when you shared your Netflix password with your friends and family, what it really ended up being was a viral marketing strategy, really, for Netflix. So um, it had been in the news for a little bit. Analysts, certainly on, on investor calls, would ask about, you know, when would Netflix clamp down on, on password sharing, right? When, when are you going to access this, you know, lost revenue sources by clamping down. And Netflix has always been kind of, you know, danced around that topic, not really sort of like, they've never given like a direct answer to it and how they would address it or when they would address it. And from our perspective, that was just the company realizing this, but not necessarily wanting to publicly state it, is that, you know, when I share my password with my, my dad or my sister or my friend, those people are watching Netflix content. And for Netflix, there's no incremental cost to them watching it. But of course, it could be incremental revenue that they're losing. However, when you look at Netflix's plans, their sort of standard plan allows you to have two simultaneous content streams. And so if there's a third person that tries to access it, you'll get a notification or they won't be able to get access to it. What will happen then is maybe you'll upgrade to their you know, high tier uh, where you have four US streams. So instead of controlling monetization by the number of users, Netflix was controlling monetization via the number of streams. And from a customer perspective, if your content provider comes to you and says, you are stealing content from us by sharing your password, right? That's wrong. You know, you're being a criminal. It's a very different experience than saying, oh, you used up all 
your quota of, you know, streams. Would you like to upgrade, you know, to add more? And, and that way it's like very easy to sort of be like, oh, I'll just upgrade or I'll split it with my friend or whatever. So anyway, um, I want to come back to the, kind of that, that flywheel effect. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV like an adventure-ready RAV4. Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain, from the road to the trails. And with plenty of passenger and cargo space, plus available tech like wireless charging, you and your entire crew can stay connected. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander with three spacious rows of seating for up to eight passengers. And with available features like panoramic moonroof, you can sit back and enjoy the wide open views with your whole family. Plus, both RAV4s and Highlanders are available in hybrid models. So no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and save on gas. So visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on RAVs, Highlanders, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. That's buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. Hey guys, do you ever wonder how investors like Peter Thiel have Roth IRAs worth billions? Many do more than just save a portion of their income, invest it in the stock market, and cross their fingers and hope it grows enough to retire on. The secret is they use something called a self-directed IRA, which has all the tax advantages we love, but with a twist. Instead of being stuck with stocks, bonds, and cookie cutter options, a self-directed IRA with New Direction Trust Company allows you to invest your retirement savings in what you know and what you're passionate about. From real estate to startups to gold and silver, there are nearly unlimited investment options. You could even finance and set the terms of a loan. You name it, NDTCO will help you fund it. We're not saying you'll be the next Peter Thiel, but we're not not saying that either. Because his secrets are now your secrets. Check out New Direction Trust Company and self-directed IRAs today at NDTCO.com and unlock the potential of your retirement savings. That's NDTCO.com. The dream of owning a vacation home can be daunting. From finding the best guests, to the maintenance, to organizing the cleaners after every guest day. With Vacasa, they make that dream into a reality. As a full-service vacation home management company with vacation homes in key destinations across the U.S., they know how to make owning a vacation home easy and profitable. On top of proactive property maintenance visits by professional local teams, a data-driven booking platform, and around-the-clock support, Homeowners earn on average 20% or more revenue from their vacation homes. Vacasa makes vacation home ownership easy. If you're looking to make more from your vacation home by doing less, partner with Vacasa at vacasa.com. That's vacasa.com to get started on your dream of owning a vacation home. All right, back to the show. You're touching on the moat a lot, which is uh, yeah. something I really am curious about because Admittedly, I'm a customer of Netflix. I watch it probably right before bed almost every night with my wife. Yeah. And, and I find it to be a resource for very bite-sized type content. And I have so many questions around this. Well, the first one was if you know anything about the strategy with comedy, because Netflix leaned in really hard early on with, with live comedy specials. And it kind of makes sense economically in my mind, right? Where it's, it's probably cheap to produce relatively speaking, you get a lot of value for, for little and, you, and there's a lot of it out there that you could produce pretty quickly. But it's certainly become, I guess what I'm comparing that to is like, that's where I would think to go first rather than an Amazon. And I have other purposes for why we go to Amazon, which I want to get into as well. But I'm curious if you know anything about that strategy or what's kind of come out of that or how you kind of see the use occasion of Netflix versus some of the other platforms. Comedy is a good one to touch on. One of the nice things about Netflix's model is that they've focused on building scale on subscribers. And today they're the largest scale content provider globally, right? With over 200 million subscribers. And of course, for, for Netflix, a subscriber is a subscription, right? Which means that there are probably an average, we're guessing here, but an average of, you know, two to three viewers of that content per subscription. When you have that level of scale, and you know, you can go back to you know when they have 60 million, 80 million, 100 million, you've got a diverse set of tastes, 
amongst that subscription base. And so early on, you know, Netflix was able to get data because it's a two-way connection over the internet. They're able to collect data on what people are watching, how long they watch, and then create these profiles of sort of sub groups of consumers that they're addressing. And obviously, you know, things like comedy became a big genre that led to success, you know, for Netflix and continuing to drive that flywheel of, of new subscribers joining and engaging really, right? Which, which also, you know, the higher the engagement, you can see Netflix then chases that with incrementally higher pricing. So yeah, I mean, comedy is, is one area that they've invested in. And although the production costs might be low, what they pay the talent has been increasing over time. There's other types of content too. I mean, they, Netflix, interestingly, going back to that comment about becoming HBO before HBO became Netflix, I mean, most recently in the last couple of years, Netflix has been rivaling HBO in the number of Emmys they're contending for, right? Which speaks to the quality. But at the same time, some of the most popular content that Netflix has is Adam Sandler movies, which are not really high quality, but people enjoy it, right? I mean, I, some of the most popular content on Netflix. And so to your point, they've built out these different genres. And, and most recently, animation has become you know, kind of a big area of focus for, for Netflix as well. And then now feature content films um, are another. I think uh, in their most recent call or, or the call before, they talked about how they basically were to come out with you know, basically a new feature film every week. You know, so that every Friday, Saturday, you have a film to watch, which is when most people watch movies, which again, is going kind of the HBO model, right? HBO, I think they said once that 60% of subscribers only watched movies and they had first dibs on you know, that uh, window post theatrical release on movies across several studios. You asked an interesting question around, you know, how do you think about the ways that Netflix addresses content for their audience versus some of the other services? A good example of this is every Friday, our family developed this tradition of family movie night, and we mm -hmm. have a three-year-old son. And so mm -hmm. my three-year-old son, we're kind of just like introducing him to all the classic Disney type movies. And yeah. I don't, to be honest, mm -hmm. I've never really gone on Disney Plus and it's probably all there. But what's been easier for us is just going on Amazon. I can type in Frozen, rent for $3.99, and within like literally half a second, that movie yeah. is playing. It's yeah. so easy and sticky in that way. But a platform like Netflix is lacking in a lot of those classical movies that you can't access as easily. So I'm kind right. of curious about that distinction and if that's intentional or if Netflix aspires to eventually own the rights to a bunch of content like that, or if it's just the moats are around the rights and they're pretty, you know, I know Amazon bought MGM brand, for example, specifically for rights. So, you know, is everyone just kind of carving out their own piece of the pie that'll be pretty defensible over time in your mind? Our belief has been that while Netflix has been built this market and is the leader in the market, that um, at the end of the day, content is the product. You've got this distribution service and you can create a great experience in that service. But if you don't have the right content, then the service is kind of not really useful, right? Because the product is the content. And Netflix understood this, you know, early on, I think when they tried to renew their first set of licensing deals, uh, one was with Stars, where, you know, when they first got that deal, they paid something very low because they had 20 million subscribers and stars didn't really believe this was going to be a you know, sustainable model, I don't think. But then when it came time to renew three years later, that deal didn't happen. And the rumor was that stars wanted you know, 10x fees to relicense. And that's kind of around the time that Netflix started its own initiative to produce its own content, original content, kind of getting to this point, which is that they saw that over time, as media companies that they were licensing from understood that... Netflix was actually winning customer attention away from them via more lucrative channels, such as cable television, that they would start to limit content to Netflix, licensing content to Netflix, or, or charge exorbitant prices, and Netflix would be beholden to them. So fast forward to today, and you basically have pretty much every media company, a legacy media company, has its own service now available. And this was a moment that we were actually anticipating. But the key is to understand what those moat sources are for the different media companies. So to your point, you know, if you have a three-year-old kid and you want them to watch all the classic, basically Disney movies, the way to go about it is, you know, either renting on Amazon or subscribing to Disney Plus. And when you think about the market, no company will have a monopoly on the best content in the world. And that market for video content around the world is trillions, right? It's a huge, huge market. What you have is a transformation in how that content is being delivered, how it's being produced 
what it costs. And in that, we believe you can have a handful of global winners, but it's going to be global scale. It's going to be this duality of you know, very large global scale players and you know, this long tail of smaller, very niche content providers, right? And you or I will probably subscribe to two, three, four you know, different subscriptions to get the entire bundle of content that we want. Amazon has an interesting model in that early on, they've always been about selection. Selection is the big thing with them, right? And so it's interesting that when you go on Amazon, so not only do they, they provide sort of free video to prime subscribers, akin to like a Netflix, where you're paying a subscription fee, you're getting some set of content for free as a result, but they also have kept it open so that you can actually rent content that's not actually provided on their prime platform. But then also you can subscribe to streaming services. Like, you know, I've in the past, I've subscribed to Showtime via Amazon. And so they kind of just want to be the marketplace for everything, you know, not just their own, just, just like in retail, right? There's things you buy from Amazon retail directly, but then there's all these third-party retailers that also sell via Amazon. So for Amazon, they've got a, a, bit, they've got a pretty unique model in that, from that perspective. It's all about offering you the broadest selection of everything, whether it's content or goods. Whereas, you know, I think the most interesting launch in the last couple of years has been Disney, obviously. And it's one that we've been kind of waiting for. Like, when is Disney going to do this? Because when we thought about the legacy incumbents that would be potential competitors to Netflix, what became clear a couple of years ago to us was that Netflix had gotten to such a scale where it's because it's globally focused. That global scale market is a big market. And when you have the amount of revenue Netflix was bringing in, and you couple that with the rate of growth in revenue by bringing in new subscribers and also incrementally raising prices, what you have is a player that can basically buy any tentpole content they want, as long as it's available to, to buy. And the thing to realize is that, you know, when we think about Disney content or MGM content or Time Warner content, those guys are, they're kind of a middleman. They're a curator who really makes the content are the, the creators, right? The directors, the screenwriters, actors. And Netflix has just as good a chance of winning those, that talent to produce for it as Disney does or Time Warner does because it has a scale. But there's a lot of other incumbent media providers in legacy media providers that just wouldn't have the scale because they're all regionally focused. Most media was regionally focused in the past, whereas with the proliferation of the internet, especially wireless, you've taken what used to be a regional scale business and made it a global scale business. And so if you can't make that leap to global scale, you're not going to be able to compete. You won't be able to pay the price. So we're going to see big dollar prices, right? Like, oh, you paid, you know, I mean, we already see, you know, movies costing a couple, 200, $300 million to make. So you pay these high prices. But the thing is, the more subscribers you have, the lower the per subscriber cost ends up being. And so the scale economics accrue to the largest players as a result of that for that best content, right? And, that, and that's what really pulls in new subscribers into your service. I hope I've answered your question. Um, yeah. How to think about these different services. What is the best metric in your mind? Let's start with financials first and then talk a little bit more about business metrics. For a fast-growing company like Netflix, you mentioned earlier, okay, it was a PE of X. But is that even a consideration with something like Netflix? Obviously, the earnings, as you were saying, you're expecting them to reinvest those as they scale. You want them to. So should yeah, we even right. pay attention to PEs? And then, or is it something like price to sales or any other key ratios that you watch for high, fast-growing companies like Netflix? Our way of figuring out the value of any business ultimately relies on what we expect future cash flows to look like. And all businesses have various periods where they invest cash flow for growth. In the case of Netflix and lots of technology companies, they invest via the profit and loss data, the P&L, where it's investing in marketing or content, things like that. Whereas a company like Walmart or Home Depot kind of went through similar growth periods where they invested in stores. You don't expense a store, you actually depreciate it over some period of 20 or 30 years or whatever it is, right? And so you get this dichotomy in terms of how value is measured from an accounting perspective, because accounting is a lot of accounting rules are basically oriented towards kind of that legacy economy, which is the tangible world economy, not necessarily the intangible world economy. Michael Mabusan, who's a great thinker in finance uh, and financial modeling, talks about this in, in a, at least one paper, but I think it's more than one paper if memory serves. For us, ultimately, you know, the value of any business ends up being around the future cash flows that you expect. And so we've always had an expectation of like, Netflix will scale. When it gets to a certain scale, it'll start to then become so it's, it's always been profitable. 
in the market, there's been this view that Netflix is oh, unprofitable, but it's actually not. It's been profitable. It's just that it's been cash flow negative. And what they've done is they recognize that they had a window of opportunity to become a global player and a leader in the space that would drive scale for them, which would then help them build that moat, right? Competitive advantage versus others. In order to accelerate that, they not only took their profits from their existing business at any given point in time, but they also borrowed money to overinvest in that content. So if you think about it, if you're going from being a US business, which is what Netflix had been in 2011, 12, 13, basically, I mean, they had some international, but basically a US business to a global business. Well, now you need to deliver content globally. You know, the type of content that people all around the world would need. And it's like the, it's the whole chicken and egg problem, right? You can't win subscribers in Korea unless you actually have Korean content. So you got to build the content base first to make it an attractive service for Koreans. Now, of course, you can augment that with, you know, US Hollywood types content that has global appeal, but you will need some set of local content to win customers and then keep them over time. And so Netflix had to build this content catalog faster than its own profit and loss statement could generate cash. So the whole idea that Netflix wasn't profitable is actually not quite right. It actually was profitable because content does have some depreciation cycle. It's just that it was borrowing money. It was cash flow negative. Our thought was always that, you know, once they, in fact, this is exactly what I said internally um, back in 2016, when we flipped from Time Warner, we sold Time Warner and bought Netflix because they had obviously the right strategy. They were doing the right things. My comment was that Netflix is over-investing in content right now. But if that overinvestment drives 20, 25% subscriber growth for the next three, four, five years, this is going to be a huge business. And at some point, they're going to get to the point where they can't physically buy more content because it's just not available. There's a diminishing rate of return on content investment over time. Where that cutoff was, was unclear. This is something that you know, we all kind of play by ear. Management plays it by ear, we play it by ear to kind of see at what point is incremental investment in content not generating new subscribers or new engagement. But at some point, it was going to be ridiculous. They were going to be able to spend so much money on content that it was going to be hard for them to actually buy good content. At that point, you're going to see the free cash flows fall to the bottom line. And so you kind of have to play out the business model you know, over a decade to kind of see where that happens. And for us, you know, we felt like that crossover was going to happen in that kind of 2023, 2025 timeframe when the company would go from being free cash flow negative to free cash flow positive and then grow tremendously from there. Our own thought was that they would be generating something in the, on the order of 30, 35, maybe even up to 40% operating margins, unclear you know, exactly where it was going to be. Right now, we believe that it's, it's probably going to be more like mid-30s, uh, plus or minus point or two. But that was always a thought. And then you basically discount that cash flow back. And that's how we arrive at, at our own sort of value for the business. Price to sales or PE. On the PE side, you know, one of the things we did is we also, you know, we thought about, well, what, what if you normalized pricing? Because it was very obvious that customers were receiving a lot more value from the service than they were paying. So they were paying 12, 13 bucks a month, but most customers felt it was worth much more than that. Just based on the, if you're engaging two hours a day, 30 days a month with Netflix at 12 bucks a month, you're getting a great, great deal. And then we also saw a history of price increases, you know, usually about a buck a year for the service and churn would sort of spike a little bit in that quarter and then it would settle down and, and the company would continue to grow, you know, massively in the quarters after that. So if you normalize for that, we sort of arrived at sort of a back of the envelope value PE multiple of in the high teens to low 20s, which seemed very, very reasonable when you looked at, you know, the growth and the, the moat and then kind of the, the large global TAM that was available to them. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV like an adventure-ready RAV4. Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain, from the road to the trails. And with plenty of passenger and cargo space, plus available tech like wireless charging, you and your entire crew can stay connected. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander, with three spacious rows of seating for up to eight passengers. And with available features like panoramic moonroof, you can sit back and enjoy the wide open views with your whole family. Plus, both RAV4s and Highlanders are available in hybrid models. So no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and save on gas. So visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on RAVs, Highlanders, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. 
That's buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. Hey guys, it's Clay Fink here, host of We Study Billionaires. Want to hear one of my favorite sounds? Here it is. That's the sound I hear when I'm learning a new language with Babbel. And if you want to learn a new language this year, I guarantee it'll be one of your favorite sounds too. Babbel is a science-backed language learning app that actually works. Their quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. I love Babbel because it makes it so easy for me to speak Spanish while ordering food, asking for directions, or just having basic conversations without needing the help of my phone. It's no wonder that Babbel has sold over 16 million subscriptions, and studies from Yale, Michigan State University, and others continue to prove that Babbel is better. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Get 55% off at babbel.com WSB. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash W-S-B. Rules and restrictions may apply. As many of you know, I love studying businesses and networking with business owners. The more I've studied businesses, the more I've realized that starting and scaling your business is easier than ever because of companies like Shopify. Did you know that Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S.? Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify even helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. What I personally love about Shopify is that it's the turnkey solution to kickstart and grow your business, and they are totally committed to giving you the necessary tools to succeed as a business owner. Plus, they have an award-winning customer support team there to help you every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at Shopify dot com slash WSB. That's all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash WSB now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. That's shopify.com slash WSB. All right, back to the show. So was your input for estimating the cash flow positivity based on a certain amount of subscribers? Like were you plotting out, okay, this adoption rate extrapolated. Because what's so fascinating, what you said earlier is like, eventually they've just fully expensed this content and then it, it's just pure profit. You had an idea of what that was at, at a certain subscribership. And then obviously they went profitable or cash flow positive in 2020. So earlier than you expected, did they just achieve the same subscriber count earlier or did they exceed your expectations on the operating side? Forecasting is an art. No one knows the future. So we're all sort of giving our best guess, but it's based on you know, you try to anchor it on reality, right? So we saw that media companies in general had kind of scaled media companies had high 20s type operating profits in their media businesses, and some even higher potentially. This was going to be a global business, global scale. So it potentially could be higher than that even. And then, you know, we saw the momentum that Netflix's business had. And the way I thought about it was that this goes back to that conversation about, you know, HBO needing to hire the head of subscriber acquisition at Netflix is that they have figured out a formula over a decade. Their DVD business was all about acquiring subscribers online. And you have to do this cost-effectively, efficiently. You have to retain those subscribers to make the economics work. So Netflix had been at this game, honing how you do that online for a decade before they went to the streaming. And then there it became sort of on steroids. It got juiced up even more. And it went global. It wasn't just the US anymore. It was global. And so that's a capability they had developed that Pretty much every other incumbent didn't have that capability. I mean, new tech kind of companies had it, you know, like an Amazon, but not Disney, not Time Warner, not CBS. So there was some level of faith. They were printing roughly 2 million subscribers a month that they were adding. And this is lumpy, right? Because we've seen over time, you know, every time 
Netflix, you know, misses their subscriber number. The stock is always volatile. It's always down 10, 15%. The market getting nervous or just short-term investors buying, selling, shorting, you know, whatever it is. But what we saw is that if you look at it from a 12-month perspective, a rolling 12-month perspective, it had been pretty consistent about adding something on the order of 2 million subscribers per month, plus or minus. The sources of those subscribers were different. Sometimes it was you know, a little bit more heavily weighted to the US, sometimes it would be Europe, sometimes Asia, but you saw this sort of consistent overall addition of, of subscribers. So we sort of just played that out and said that, okay, so if they could continue, and in the US, they had something like 50% market share of households. So we looked at the US as being a mature market. We weren't expecting much subscriber growth there because once you get past 50, half of all households, and then of course you've got, I don't know, maybe 10 or 20 percent other, you know, sort of people that are sharing passwords with the subscribers. So you might realistically have 60-70% market share in the US. There we felt like the big growth would come from pricing, just raising pricing a dollar a month for several years. Until they got to a spot where like customers resisted it. It doesn't feel like to us we've reached that yet. Have you done any surveys about that? I'm curious, like have you have you estimated how price sensitive the customers are, how elastic the price might be for Netflix? We haven't done surveys, but we've seen other people's surveys. You know, so there's a, a service called Bespoke. We're not direct subscribers, but you know, they'll put up things on, on LinkedIn where they'll put up you know, charts of what customers think of price increases or how they view Netflix. But for us, surveys are interesting, but the data is what really matters, right? Like when it comes down to it, you see, like I said, in, in the past, you've seen you know, a little bit of a spike in churn the quarter after price increases happen, and then it just kind of goes back to normal. And so when you compare like a year later, Netflix has grown subscribers on the back of those higher prices. And so effectively, that tells us that Netflix subscribers, by and large, think it's worth more than whatever they're paying for, even after price increases. And one way to think about it is that if you're watching two hours a day of Netflix for you know, 30 days a month, that's 60 hours of Netflix a month. And at whatever, $12 a month, $13 a month, $15 a month even, it's less than the cost of a cup of coffee right? every, every day. But the caveat to that, in my opinion, and it's ironic because all these companies disrupted cable, but you start to hit a threshold, I think, where the in aggregate, the cost you're spending on content is what you start considering, right? Where at a certain point, you're like, well, I've got Netflix, I've got HBO, I've got XYZ, and all of a sudden, I'm spending 120 bucks a month on content, and I used to spend 80 on cable. I'm wondering if, there's, if that's a thing of the past or if customers will be sensitive in that regard, like in aggregate, and, and then start cutting from there. It's a great question. And it's an open question that we're waiting on. I mean, our viewpoint is, you know, once Netflix became the HBO of television, its next goal was to become television of television, right? So basically, you just go to Netflix to watch all your content. On the other hand, people have various tastes and every household has a few different household members that might have different types of content preferences. You know, going back to your question about comedy, right? The different genres that Netflix has added over time, that's all investment in content. That's all investment in trying to engage as much of your attention across your household as possible. Because eventually, Netflix wants to be the $25 streaming service or the $30 streaming service. You pay a dollar a day for all your TV needs from them. And while you know, many people have this sort of nostalgia for Disney cartoons or Star Wars or Marvel, which are great, right? Obviously, I mean, a lot of huge amounts of money that they make on the, on the theatrical releases and then, and then the engagement they get from, from customers. But if eventually you just come down to basically Netflix and Disney that cost you 40 bucks a month, let's say, uh, maybe 50, but look at the type of content you're getting, right? The quality of content between these two services. I mean, it's pretty amazing, actually, compared to like the majority of the content that you get on cable television, right? I mean, it's, it's a huge step up in quality. But at the end of the day, you know, from our perspective, and I think this is true of Netflix's perspective, they want to be your television service, right? At 25, 30 bucks a month. And the way we think about it is that Netflix and, and surveys have shown this, that most subscribers to streaming think of Netflix as kind of the, the base platform service they start with. And then they'll incrementally add other services depending on the content they want to watch. So, you know, when billions is on Showtime, they'll be they'll add billions, you know, Showtime for a couple of months, watch billions, and then they're kind of done, they'll stop subscribing to that. And then maybe when there's a new Marvel movie, they'll go to Disney and they'll you know, subscribe to that. If you have kids, then Disney's a lot stickier. But as an adult, I mean, you run out of content on Disney pretty quick. And this is the other part of the flywheel, right? And, and Disney obviously has learned this and knows this, and they're investing in this. But the part of the flywheel, coming back to that topic earlier, is that the more subscribers you have, the more revenue you have, the more dollars you have to invest in content, new content, which then 
engages your current subscribers and draws new subscribers, which brings more revenue, which gives you more content dollars to spend on new content. Right? So it's a cycle. Disney has been a phenomenal success. And I make the argument that I really admired Disney because they were late-ish to the game. I mean, I was surprised how long it took them to get into the direct streaming business because along with HBO, Disney was the other one that has a global brand recognition. They've got, I mean, as you mentioned, right, this IP, the catalog of content and brands and franchises they have is incredible, globally known. And, um, you know, I have to hand it to them. I mean, they, they did an incredible job. Disney always comes across as a company that talks about premium content that they have, right? There's various companies that talk about it, but Disney really does have premium content. And you would expect traditionally that someone like a Disney would be arrogant enough to say that, oh, well, because we have premium content, we're going to come in at a premium price. And yet they were not arrogant. They were very, very smart. I like to say they were so smart. They actually copied Netflix's playbook step by step. So what did Netflix do? They priced their service very low to make it a no-brainer for you to subscribe. They made it very easy for you to subscribe, very easy for you to cancel. No contracts, no, no issues about that, right? You can come back whenever you want, uh, make it really easy. In the process of getting you the experience that, that they wanted to deliver, they built out their own CDN network, which is a content delivery network, so that whether you're in Brazil or um, Germany or the U.S., when you hit play for a certain piece of content, you get it pretty much instantaneously. And whether it's broadband, where you have 100 megabits per, per, per uh, second you know, network speeds, or on your phone, you know, when you're out on the train, on the subway, at 4G speeds or 3G speeds, you know, it's pretty seamless how quickly that content loads and starts playing. In order to deliver that, there's a huge amount of back-end network work that you have to do that Netflix did pretty early on. What did Disney do? They acquired BamTech would build this out for sports and then leverage BamTech's CDN basically to be able to do the same thing. Netflix has built out this huge content catalog organically. They, like I said, the people in the market, investors in the market have criticized Netflix for borrowing all this money, you know, something to the tune of $11, $12 billion in order to invest in content, build out this content. Disney went out and bought Fox for, you know, uh, to build out the scale of its content. So all in all, like one more thing is that that low price, Disney went with this low price when they launched. And it's because they want to make it really easy for you, deliver tons of consumer surplus to you to subscribe and then stick around, wait for new content. Instead of saying, oh, you know, I'm paying $15 a month for this and I haven't watched anything new in a month, I'm just going to cancel. But if it's $6.99, well, let's give it another month. We'll just kind of, you know, kind of forget about that, right? And so Disney picked up all these different tactics that Netflix had used to succeed in building out a scale to do it for itself. And now look at Disney today, I mean, over 100 million subscribers in a couple of years. This is like unimaginable. It's, it's incredible, right? Um, so Disney was very smart. They, they were very humble, humble enough to copy Netflix, you know, pretty much play by play without their service. In time, we think that, you know, what will end up happening is you'll have probably three, four, maybe five global services, depending on your economic situation and your interests. If you're in the developed countries, maybe you'll subscribe to three of them for something like 40 or 50 bucks a month in total. You know, if you're in an emerging market, maybe you pick one. Maybe you share a couple between friends or family where uh, you, you share passwords. I think that'll be part of it. But at the end of the day, if the business model revolves around continuous, simultaneous streams being delivered, I think the, the business model works really well, actually, and actually expands the market for video content because there were once large swaths of the world that couldn't afford to pay $20 a month or $50 a month for you know, quality professional content. And now if you're sharing you know, Disney and Netflix and maybe a third thing amongst you know, group of five, each you know, sort of two, three sort of simultaneous streams, you're each basically ending up paying you know, $5 a month maybe for all this amazing content, right? So the value proposition goes up, the market size expands, and, and you have space for, I think, you know, something like three global winners as a result. How should we think about the amount of debt that Netflix carries. Obviously, you're not too worried about it with cash flow positivity now, and they'll be able to start yeah. winding that down. But obviously, all this content generation is expensive. So mm-hmm. how do you think about that? Now that Netflix has transitioned to guidance that management has given us, they no longer will have to go to the market to raise debt. If they do, it's going to be opportunistic. Pretty much what Netflix is saying is that they've gotten to the point in their scale where it's self-sustaining in terms of the content investments they have to make. And as they continue growing, we think, and they've also guided to, they're going to do something like 20% operating margins this year. That's what they've guided to. And then they expect to keep growing that by about 300 basis points. So 3% additional operating margin points 
every year going for the foreseeable future. And then for us, that means, you know, in five years, you've added another 15 points of margin. That's 35%. That's kind of how we think about where the ultimate margin goes to. And so the way that we think about incremental revenue is that when they bring on an extra subscriber, you buy content with that incremental content, that incremental revenue stream. When they raise prices, that falls to the bottom line. So there's this, there's this network effect and also this economic effect, right? So on the network effect, every additional subscriber enables Netflix to buy more content that benefits all the subscribers in the base. That's the network effect, right? Incremental customer benefits everybody. The economic effect is incremental dollar of revenue generated by a price increase falls directly to the bottom line. And that's roughly kind of how we had modeled it. And that's roughly how it's kind of played out. And so that incremental dollar every month over a subscriber base of 200 million plus ends up being incremental $200 million per month every time they raise pricing by a dollar. Our thought is that, that when you work out the numbers, you're going to end up with free cash flow. Well, A, we think that over the next decade, Netflix is going to double its subscriber base, right? So something in the you know, 2028, 2030 timeframe, you'll have you know, 400 million subscribers rather than 200 million. In addition, we think that price will increase by roughly about a dollar a year. That ends up being something on the order of 7% a year price increases, uh, Caker. And that ends up creating a uh, revenue stream of um, about $90 billion in kind of timeframe at roughly a 35% operating margin. Again, these are all rough numbers, right? Like we, no one can predict exactly what the future will look like, but we think these are reasonable numbers from our perspective. And that'll generate something on the order of, you know, 18, 19, $20 billion in free cash flow. So a lot of their debt comes due way out in the future, you know, a few years out. And so I think the total debt today is on the order of $14 billion, uh, if memory serves, $14, $15 billion. So, you know, being able to manage that sort of a debt load is fairly easy from that perspective. In fact, we think that they should actually borrow more money over time and do more. So what more could they do? How do they add value? And this is, this is one of the things that we think a lot about. I mean, when I think about ultimately, and this goes back to my comment about, which was really where the insight sort of formulated, was watching how kind of the traditional shareholder-focused company, like a Time Warner, focused on shareholders, profitability. Shareholders care about profitability to the extent that they were actually offering their consumers less and less value as a result. On the other hand, you had Netflix, which focused on the consumer and tried to address their value and in the process, create a bunch of value for shareholders. Two very diametrically opposed viewpoints of how you approach strategy and you know, building a business. And so I really like that idea of the role of a, of a company is to create value for their customer. And in the process, also share that value with employee stakeholders. So it's employees, it's partners. In this case, it's content creators. And there's been different profiles of high-profile content talent that have gone to Netflix because they were easy to work with, better economics, you know, just all sorts of cultural things that they got more freedom from Netflix. It's like, it was like a win-win-win. It's like, you got more freedom, more money, larger viewing audience to watch your content, right? 200 million subscribers. So I mean, any, anyone who makes content, that's what they care about is like, how many people watch my content? How much money will I make? And how much creative freedom will I have to make that content? And Netflix offers the best of all those worlds, right? Relative to legacy media. And so, you know, to see a company be able to do that is amazing. And, and I think that's entirely ingrained in the culture of a company and entirely the reason why the company has been so successful in disrupting this, you know, multi hundreds of billion dollar industry, right? In a way that would have been really hard to imagine back when Time Warner CEO called Netflix, the Albanian army that was trying to take their little guns and attack this big giant media industry. So going forward, I mean, you know, there's various ways that Netflix can add more value. And of course that drives subscriber engagement, new subscriber additions, and the ability to increase pricing over time and increase pricing in a way that customers are okay with. This is the key. Pricing power is not that I can shove pricing down your throat and you have no choice. That's one way to do it. And I think that's how most Buffett-esque, I don't think Buffett thinks this way actually, but I think Buffett-esque investors who've learned from him think of pricing power as I can cram down pricing on you because I can, because you need my thing so badly. I think the better way to create a service product is one where the customer gets so much value that they kind of don't mind if you charge them more, you know, because they're like, I love this. I just love, I mean, look at Apple. This is like the epitome of pricing power, right? You can buy a smartphone for 200 bucks, but you pay a thousand for an iPhone. I mean, this is just mind blowing. Ferrari is another one like that, where you can buy a Honda Civic for $20,000, but you'll pay 250,000 for a Ferrari. Again, these companies are 
creating so much value for the customers, however you define that value and whatever that customer set is, that customers are willing to hand over money to them. They're begging them to take their money, basically, right, for their products. So with Netflix, I mean, they just announced recently that they're going to enter gaming, they're going to add gaming to their service, which, you know, we've done some work on, on the gaming industry. And I mean, it's, it's very mainstream, very ubiquitous, you know, there's a big global market and exactly the market that would be consuming content. So anyway, these are, these are other ways that Netflix adds value and so potentially could, could surpass our forecasts uh, over the next decade. I want to talk about those forecasts a little bit. I have, I have one last sort of two-part question for you again. Which is basically, you know, now that we're cash flow positive here on Netflix, how do you see that cash flow growth continuing? And then what's your discount rate to get back to today? And, you know, another way to think about it is just what's the intrinsic value for Netflix and, and how does the price kind of compare to that in today's market? Our sort of forecasted model, you know, that goes uh, to kind of the 2028, 2030 timeframe forecasts Netflix growing subscribers. So, so the bulk of the growth in subscribers will come from international markets. We really don't care too much about US subscriber growth because we sort of have had the viewpoint this is a mature market. It succeeded our expectations actually in that it has actually grown. But where, where we do think that the US contributes is on is on pricing. So Netflix has you know much greater pricing power here because we pay we're willing to pay a lot more for video entertainment than like say a customer in India or you know or even Europe actually. We do think that the US contributes to pricing over time, which falls directly to the bottom line pretty much. We see most of the subscriber growth coming from international markets where the penetration rate is sub 10% still from our viewpoint. And so if, if, they, if they're successful in doing what we think they can do, which is grow revenue to like 90 billion on the back of, call it about 10% subscriber growth over the next decade, this is a compound annual growth. It's basically doubling the number of subscribers today to sort of eight to 10 years from now. Pricing grows about 7% a year. Operating margins grow to 35, 36, 37%. We see revenue of about 90 billion and free cash flow of about 20 billion. And so when we discount that back, we do a whack, you know, kind of weighted average cost of capital discount. You know, we think Netflix has guided to roughly 15 billion in, in debt that they'll have in their balance sheet. We think they can actually grow beyond that to something like two times EBITDA. And, uh, you know, we think of their equity cost of capital as being kind of the standard 9%, which is what the market has returned over time. In the past, when we first invested in Netflix, we had a higher equity discount rate because we thought it was, a, it was riskier. It was unknown how well the international markets could develop. It was, it was, the US was very developed. It was very mature. So that could get a 9% kind of a discount rate. It's kind of a standard average market discount rate. But international was, they were investing in, that was a much riskier business. And that was just unknown. Like there was a lot of upsetting come from that. But today we sort of see the international business as being known. They demonstrated they can grow it quickly. They, and this is the other thing that Netflix does really well is They've taken the business model of content production from being a very local one. So if you think about U.S. media companies, they produced in the U.S. European media companies, they produced in Europe. Netflix is the first that has a global production capability. And they take that global production and they distribute it globally so that you know, some of the biggest shows in Latin America are big shows in Europe. I assume at some point there'll be big shows in India because culturally, there's a lot of similarities between Latin America and India. Indian shows have been distributed globally. And, you know, one of the big shows here was Sacred Games that came out of India and it was subtitled. Um, there's European shows that have been done really, Lupin is a French show that has done really well here, uh, but it's all in French, right? So we're seeing this ability to basically source content globally and distribute it effectively globally, which no one else has done yet, right? This is the first thing that was done. And from that comes a lot of advantages, economic advantages in content production, right? Because the US is one of the highest cost content production regions. Whereas India or other parts of Asia, parts of Europe, Latin America, these are lower content cost production places. And yet the value that you can generate from it is global, right? So we watch in the US, we're a high value market, Europe is a high value market. So there, there's lots of economic plays in there that make precisely pointing to what content costs will be in the future kind of hard and also what the margin will be kind of hard. But we think kind of a mid 30s margin is a reasonable estimate. So when you bring that back down, you know, to, um, to what we think the fair value of the company is, I think you're going to be surprised. It's, uh, you know, given the $500, it's like 520-ish price that we're at today, we actually think it's, this is worth $870. So there's quite a bit of upside, yeah. But that's, you know, if you believe those, those forecasts, right? If you believe those forecasts and depending on what your cost of capital, you know, what your cost of capital assumptions are, it'll be different. But for, from our perspective, given our framework, 870 is kind of what we think it's worth. Arf, this has been fantastic. I've really enjoyed talking with you about Netflix and I learned a lot. It's a product I use all the time. So I had a particular interest in it. 
yeah. you've been right about the stock for a long time and it's uh it'll be interesting to see where it goes from here but thank you again for taking the time to come on our show and we always love having you back so i hope to do it again soon oh you're very welcome i love chatting with you and, and your colleagues it's always a great conversation and uh you know i'm glad you found it interesting and i hope your audience does too all right folks that's all we had for you this week if you're loving the show feel free to Follow us on your favorite podcast app so you get these episodes in your app every week automatically. And don't forget to follow me on Twitter and say hello at Trey Lockerbie. And lastly, if you learned a lot from this discussion and you want to figure out how to do your own intrinsic value calculations, you can simply Google TIP Finance and look at all the courses and tools we've already built for you there. So with that, we'll see you again next time. Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to Millennial Investing by the Investors Podcast Network and learn how to achieve financial independence. To access our show notes, transcripts, or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.